Welcome to the Employment Law and HR Podcast with your host, Allison Colley. Hello and welcome to this episode 219 of the Employment Law and HR Podcast. I'm your host, Alison Colley. I'm an employment law specialist and I run the firm Real Employment Law Advice, where together with my colleagues, we provide advice and assistance to both employers and employees on all aspects of employment law. Our flagship service is our HR Harbour membership, which is a service that we offer to employers to provide you with ongoing support in relation to HR and employment law. If you think of us as being your HR outsourced resource, then you can get all levels of support from just access to telephone advice through to us coming into your business and undertaking meetings and HR functions for you. If you'd like to know more about the service and how we can help you, then please don't hesitate to get in touch. My email is alison at realemploymentloradvice.co.uk. Today, I'm really excited to be joined by Michelle Jimmer. Michelle has been a contact of mine on LinkedIn for a number of years, and she always posts great content and a regular newsletter about equality and the pay gap. Michelle is a pay gaps expert who has first-hand experience of what the pay gap feels like. She spent 10 years working at the Equality and Human Rights Commission and provides lots of useful information in relation to the pay gap and how employers and organisations can work to close their pay gap. Michelle is also the host of the podcast Beyond the Pay Gap Figure, which I'll link to in the show notes. So without further ado, I'm going to get into this week's featured content. So I'm really pleased to be joined by Michelle today. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast, Michelle. Thank you for having me. Do you want to tell the audience a bit about yourself and how you started your business and got into the world of equal pay? Yeah, well, I always start the story with saying that it's by accident because I don't think many people think to themselves, when I grow up, I want to be a pay gaps consultant. So I started my kind of real professional life working at the Equality and Human Rights Commission and the remit for for them is to provide advice for employers on how to understand the Equality Act that was introduced in 2010, how to make sense of it in terms of, you know, running their businesses, whether they were businesses or education organisations, etc. And so I started life working on the helpline. So I was advising schools and colleges and universities. And then I decided to go for a promotion. And the way that it worked in the organisation is that you did an interview and based on your skills and then you were assigned like a theme as it were so that was how I ended up becoming an equal pay policy manager and interestingly enough I knew nothing about equal pay I'd never even heard of it (laughs) so I got this job and then I basically had to learn on the job as it were so the work that I did was advising employers on what equal pay was and how to navigate it and what they should be doing as you know, employers and business owners. And then after a while, I decided that actually I wanted to do it freelance. Obviously, this is once I understood, <laughs> understood what I was doing because I wanted to be much more hands on 
I wanted to be involved actually with the businesses, trying to kind of problem solve the challenges that they had and help them find solutions around how to ensure that they provided equal pay and how to close their gender and ethnicity pay gap. So that was when I set up my business, which I set up when I was actually coming to the end of my first round of maternity leave. And that was that was nine years ago because my eldest is now 10. So the work that I do is around supporting employers with their gender pay gap reporting and supporting them with creating action plans that genuinely work for them because I think there's still quite a lot of mystery around the gender pay gap. There's still quite a bit of you know misconceptions and miseducation. So my work is around demystifying what the pay gap is and then helping employers to you know pull those strategies and plans together that actually make sense for their business as opposed to kind of chasing the idea of just being able to reduce their figure because you know that makes that makes them look good yeah so that's what I do in a nutshell. Okay that's great thank you. So I think what we'll do is if we start really with the basics, you talked there about gender pay gap reporting and there may be many people listening to the podcast who don't understand what that is or haven't any idea. So could you just explain what the obligations are and who it applies to? Yeah, so gender pay gap reporting is is within the Equality Act. And so what that means is that for businesses that have 250 employees or more, they have to report publicly on what their gender pay gap figure is. And, you know, the government has set out, you know, specific um, measurements that they have to take. So for those of you that remember, you know, your kind of maths, you have to do the median and you have to do the mean, which is basically the average earnings between men and women within the organisation. And what happens is that that information is put onto a public government portal. So anybody can go and access that portal and see that information. And the information that's on there is held for three years. So if you have already reported for the last two years, last year or three years, you know, that information is going to be on the portal so people can go and see what improvements, if any improvements you've made. And then what you should do is also have that information on your website as well so that people can go and find it. The legislation doesn't say that you have to provide an action plan for those of us that are in the UK, but it is advisable to because the thing about numbers is that it can mean nothing to people. It can be very confusing. And so having an action plan and a narrative is your opportunity to essentially explain some of the context as to why you have the pay gap and explain what you're going to do about it next. And so the deadline is the same time every year. So for public sector, it's the 31st of March. And for private sector, it's usually any time between the 4th and 6th of April. And you have to have 250 employees at that point. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, that, that's the threshold. However, having said that, there are some companies that have less that will voluntarily report anyway, because they obviously see the value in doing this work and obviously, you know, being very public and visible. And so in relation to the requirements to report your gender pay gap, if a company fails to do that, what are the consequences for them? Yeah, that's a really interesting question because technically the Equality and Human Rights Commission kind of own ownership over managing what happens. 
And so at the moment, my understanding is that they have the ability to kind of name and shame organizations that don't report. So I think if you go onto their website, they will have a list of all the companies that haven't reported on their pay gap. Another thing that they also do is they can write to, to organizations if they think that the data that they've put through doesn't make statistical sense. And there have been times where they've had to write to some companies, you know, some well-known UK companies several times saying to them, you need to resubmit this data because what you've what you've produced is factually impossible. It just doesn't make sense. But having said that, I was actually having a conversation with a colleague of mine and there is potential talk around the Equality and Human Rights Commission having more powers in terms of kind of sanctions, I guess, things that they could do to organisations that that don't report on this. But however, at this at this stage, nothing has been confirmed. But I think conversations are being had as to how to ensure that all companies that come under that remit do actually report at all, as well as on time. So really, the consequences about business reputation, isn't it? And reputation amongst your consumers, you know, contracts and employees, rather than it being a sort of financial sanction for failure. Yeah. And, you know, and I guess it's like with everything, you know, organisations have to weigh up as to whether they think that that is enough of a consequence. But I mean, yeah, we live in a time where, you know, we can access information instantly. But it also means that we can make perceptions about companies instantly as well. So you have to weigh up, is it worth not reporting on this or reporting it late? Is that genuinely worth it to save yourself some time because you're busy? And I think for a lot of organisations, the answer is no, because you know I know increasingly that people are very, very interested in companies' um, pay gap reports. And I, and I also know anecdotally that it's coming up during interviews you know at the end when they say oh have you got any questions people are doing their research about companies and and you know one of the questions that co- comes up quite a lot is the commitment to DEI and obviously you know pay gaps is is within that remit so even though it might seem like oh you know brand reputation I'm sure we can ride it out for me it doesn't feel like a risk that's worth taking because you don't actually know how the, how that's going to play out essentially. And then so moving on in relation to equal pay, we've talked about the requirements to report, but of course, individuals or collective groups of employees can bring claims in relation to equal pay, can't they? And that's not just exclusively to larger employers, that could be more employers as well. So do you want to talk a bit about that? Yeah, so so equal pay is is different. And I think there is sometimes some confusion between, you know, equal pay and the gender pay gap. So when we talk about equal pay, we're talking about is pay fair and equal between two comparators. And so when we talk about comparators, you know, for equal pay, we could be talking about a man and woman. We could talk about, you know, it could be along the lines of race. It could be along the lines of disability. And doesn't have to be just one person you can have you know a cohort of people who are comparing themselves to another cohort of people and so you know the kind of classic examples I think with ASDA and you know Birmingham City Council obviously that's that's made the headlines very recently and the difference with that is that this is in, enshrined in legislation so you know equal pay is a, is a legal right it's unlawful to have equal pay and so that is where 
the organization, the size of the organization doesn't make a difference here. A person or a group of people can bring a claim in tribunal to say that they feel that they are not receiving, you know, equal pay compared to their comparators and that there is no real justification, objective justification for that difference. And so therefore it can only be because of because of their gender or because of their race or because they have they have a disability. Um, so that so that is the main thing. And when it comes to gender pay gap reporting, there are restrictions as to who needs to report. And there isn't really any kind of legal recourse because it's a, more about progression and how do you see representation within an organization? But with legal, um, but with equal pay, sorry, there is that kind of legal um, backup. Yeah, so that's quite a critical difference, isn't it? It's you, an individual can bring an, an equal pay claim based on their protected characteristic, mm-hmm. and which could be any of their protected characteristics, not just gender, whereas currently the requirements to report are only in relation to gender. And so, I mean, obviously, we talked a bit about the, the legal risks of getting things wrong, the reputational risks, but there must be a wider benefits for the organisation for approaching equal pay in a, in a purposeful way. So what are the kind of benefits that you your clients see from from taking this action and doing this work? Well, you know, it's in and of itself, it's it's a great attraction and retention tool because when, you know, people feel valued and they feel that they are being paid fairly and they feel that the opportunity to progress in their career is much more equitable, they're much more likely to stay with you, much more likely to be productive. And something that I talk to clients about a lot is that you know you have to remember that your employees are they're your ambassadors so whether you kind of give them that title or not the fact that they work for you they represent your organization so what you need to be thinking about is what would you like them to be saying about you when you're not in the room and so if you are an employer that doesn't take equal pay doesn't take you know closing pay gaps um seriously doesn't have you know pay transparency all those types of things then what do you think your employees are going to be saying about you if somebody asks so what's it like to work at such and such you know we're all very you know amongst our you know our friends and peers we're all quite candid about you know what it's like to work somewhere especially if it's a well-known name so we so as an organization you do have to be mindful that Whilst you may think that there's not that much of a brand reputation risk or not much of of a legal risk or a financial risk, you do have to be careful and think about everything that you choose to do. There is a consequence for that, as well as the things that you choose not to do. So for me, it makes good business sense to make this a priority, you know, alongside all of the kind of business operational things that you do and the you know the the financial decisions that you make about your business. Yeah that's really interesting you say that especially at a time where it's very difficult to recruit there's people you know skills shortage in certain areas Um, so thinking purposefully about it will obviously impact on your ability to recruit the right people. So I did want to ask a question in relation to pay transparency and Mm -hmm. because quite a lot of the time businesses are quite protective about what they pay staff and you know I know we've certainly been asked by people can we tell our employees not to talk about pay obviously the first question is well why would you want to do that (laughs) but what's your views on on businesses who try to you know protect their the information around pay yeah that's a really interesting one and it's funny that you use the word 
protect and that people mm. like, businesses are quite protective around that and I was like oh I've not really thought of it from that perspective because I'm not sure that employees would would see as as protection yeah it's an interesting one um and I think what tends to happen is that organizations think that pay transparency means everybody knows everybody's business and the reality is, is that pay transparency is a spectrum so at one end you have that there is no conversation about pay at all nobody knows anything and then at the other extreme is that everybody in the organization knows everyone's pay and even you know it could even be on the internet so buffer is an example of a company that have that complete transparency but then there are different degrees as well so i think when approaching this conversation it's about thinking well what would work best for our organization? So are we going to go for that complete tra transparency or are we going to go for a smaller level of transparency that gives people um, some kind of ownership over what's happening over their careers, gives them some insight into how the decision about their pay is being made and gives them some insight into, OK, well, what is required and what could I gain if I wanted to progress in an organization? I do find it a little bit worrying that the concept of possibly stopping people from having this conversation comes up and the reality is that it's actually very difficult to do because again like I said in the example I gave before we're all candid about you know what it's like to work somewhere so you can't really stop those conversations but if you are worried about people talking about that then I think there are two things one you do need to understand your pay philosophy so you do need to understand how those decisions are being made and to check for any inequalities and a great one great starting point is to do an equal pay audit to make sure that there isn't any problems but the second thing I would say is that if you are going to go for some level of pay transparency is to provide kind of training and support for line managers on how to hold those conversations about pay because that will enable you to kind of own the narrative in a much more productive and proactive way and that will help to alleviate some of the fears that you might have around people having their own conversations because when people are left around their own devices that's when rumorville starts but if you have processes in place and you have people who um, have an understanding around how to have those conversations, you're in a much better position where you can actually control that narrative much better and ensure that the narrative sticks more closely to the truth as opposed to kind of being inflated because of that absence of, of information. No, that's really helpful. Um, and you talked there about doing an equal pay review. And I'm just thinking from a sort of small to medium sized business perspective where they don't mm. have any requirement to actually gather this information. They might be thinking, well, do you know what? It all sounds great and we'd love to do it, but we don't have the time. So what are the kind of quick wins that a business could take to resolve some of these issues if they don't have any kind of pay structure in place? Well, I think because if we're talking about small businesses, small organisations, it doesn't actually have to be very onerous. I mean, it only becomes onerous if you're if you're a large organisation and the chances are that you've probably got um, resources, people, software to be able to do that. But for small businesses, I know that the Equality and Human Rights Commission, they have information on their website around how you can conduct a kind of light touch equal pay audit. Um, so that's so that's that's the first thing It doesn't have to be something that's onerous 
onerous and it doesn't have to be something that you have to do every year you know kind of every three to five years is probably a good gauge but in terms of wins I would say you know the the first benefit is that you are building in that resilience in your business so there's not going to be any kind of unpleasant surprises further down the line because because you've done the work but also it gives you something to talk about within the organization as well as externally I mean you pointed to the fact that it's difficult to recruit people right now but one of your standout selling points could be that you're an organization that takes this seriously and that you are transparent about your findings and if you find anything untoward that you do the things that you need to do to rectify them so I think the quick wins need to be kind of thought about in terms of you know how does this enhance our brand reputation but also how does this build in that business resilience so that we know that there's not going to be any any unexpected surprises we're not going to be served with you know papers because you know somebody's found found out something because you've done that kind of preemptive work as it were no, that's really helpful. And I'll put some links in the show notes to the um, the resources that you've you've mentioned there, which would be really helpful. And um, before we sort of round things off, I just want to touch upon a couple of things. Firstly, why do you think it is that um, women are often paid less than men for the same role? I think it's a it's a kind of combination of things. So the first one will be around the issue to do with pay transparency and pay secrecy. We we talked about, you know, that kind of protectiveness. If you are kind of coming into um, an an interview or promotion role and there is real secrecy or it's very cloak and dagger as to what's available and what's possible, it's very hard to gauge what you should be asking for. And so, so women might find themselves in a position in the absence of having any real data and information they are in this on the side of caution in order to kind of ensure that they get the job or ensure that they get the promotion so that's the first thing the second thing is that there's you know there's been lots of kind of articles done around the fact that you know women don't negotiate or negotiate less than men and men ask for more etc but recently we're seeing actually more research coming out saying that women negotiate and ask for you know bigger salaries actually just as much as men but what happens is that they receive much more pushback than men so they're offered less or they receive much more pushback in you know in having that conversation so I do think that there is something around ensuring that you know our biases around what we pay people and why we pay them more or less than others needs to be factored into when making these decisions so I think for me it will be the issue around pay secrecy and the inherent bias that we see in that kind of recruitment and promotion conversation to the detriment of women. Yeah and just picking up on that point then what's your views on um, people putting the details of the salary in their job um, adverts. Uh, I remember not too long ago on LinkedIn, there was quite a big debate about it, whether you, you know, it was a good good practice to put the salary banding or range in, in the advert or not. Well, I guess like everything, it depend, depends on how you do it. So I don't know if you know, but um, in the United States, there are quite a lot of states are now implementing um, pay transparency and New York I think was was one of the latest ones and so there's lots of like cheering like yeah this is great you know having that transparency at the point of applying for a job 
but then we would see some organizations being quite crafty and having like a really massive range of like you know $200,000 or something and then you kind of think oh well that defeats the purpose of what we're trying to do here you know my take on it is that you know the more transparency the better because at the end of the day we all work for money and I don't think there's anything inherently wrong in 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 being honest about that yes you know we value our work it gives us purpose etc but the salary has to be right for us and our circumstances so it makes sense to be upfront about that having said that if this is what you're going to do then it also makes sense that you kind of get your house in order behind the scenes and I think part of the reason why some organizations are so protective is because they know that there are real big discrepancies between what they're offering people that are coming in compared to what people have now so yes I, w- I would definitely advocate for that but you do have to do all of that work on the back end to ensure that there is fairness and equity baked into what your salary uh, offers are but for your existing employees as well because otherwise it's going to cause problems and then also you may you know exacerbating pay gaps and exacerbating um, equal pay um, issues as well. That's great thank you and then finally I just want to ask I saw that you had done an an episode of of your own podcast about how your social economic status impacts on pay now of course that wouldn't fall under a protected characteristic but it's quite an interesting point from I think obviously where you've come from and what your you know family status is as to your perceptions around money and pay and all that sort of thing so yeah what what's your what's your views on that and and how can you you know resolve that sort of issue which isn't enshrined in law and probably not really thought about too much yeah it's funny you should mention that because that of the podcast that is the most popular episode which I was I was really really surprised with but it obviously has struck accord with a lot of people and I think probably because it's something that doesn't get talked about very often and like you said it's not you know your social class is not a protected characteristic and part of the reason why I even recorded um, that episode is because I wanted to kind of lift the lid on this conversation around pay but look at it from a much more of a personal position in terms of how we think and feel about money because I think my perception is that it's a conversation we don't talk about very often, but it's something that we that impacts our lives. You know, it impacts our behaviours, the choices that we make with the money that we have, with the jobs that we go for, you know, how we decide to spend our money, etc. And so, you know, in that episode, we explored the fact that, you know, depending on, you know, kind of what background you came from, some of the, the things that you've learned from your parents around putting your head down, just getting on with your work not asking for too much you know when we when we soak up those ideas we then don't put ourselves in the position of feeling that it's okay to ask and then if you marry that with the fact that you know some organizations are being really like opaque about their pay kind of systems you know they may take advantage of the fact that oh well you know she didn't ask for more if she had asked for more I would have given more so I so I do think that is a, that is a conversation that is coming down the line it's probably going to be part of financial wellness in that terms of 
having much more open, healthy conversations around money and addressing, you know, our own inherent biases that we might have that we've inherited from friends and family to do with our upbringing, our, you know, our religion, our class, all of those types of things. And it's something that I feel quite passionate about. And, you know, I've, I've, I've trained to be a financial coach because I think that this is important. And even though people might say, oh, well, it's got nothing to do with work. I think it's it's one of those things that's kind of it, it influences how we show up at work. So I think it's going to fast become, uh, you know, another topic of conversation when we talk about pay gaps, pay equity and pay transparency. Yeah. And certainly in terms of the whole diversity, equality and inclusion piece, it's coming up more and more often. Um, In my profession as a solicitor, we have to report data around our employees. And one of the measures now we have to report is what your parents did. I think it's when you were age 15, you know, what employment they were in and whether you're the first to go to university, all of that sort of thing. So, you know, increasing the diversity within the solicitor's profession, recognising that from certain socioeconomic classes, we're not very well represented so um mm. it's it's certainly something i think that's coming in whether that will be any legislation in relation to that i i doubt it i think there are already m- moves to extend the protected characteristics in other ways um aren't there which have been resisted such as you know menopause so mm. i think it's unlikely but certainly from getting the best and you know diverse workforce getting the best skills and experience as employers you think you should be thinking about all of these things so that's really helpful. Thank you. It's been really interesting to talk to you, Michelle. And I, I find it a very fascinating topic, I have to say, and something that doesn't often come up in, in our day to day kind of working areas. It's just occasionally pops in with the old question about it. So it's really interesting to talk to you from your perspective. Um, if anybody would like to get in touch with you to find out more about what you do or to work with you, how's the best way to contact you? Yeah, so um, my favourite place to kind of hang out, as they say, is LinkedIn. So you can look for me um, under my name, Michelle Jimmer. Alternatively, you can have a look on my website, which is qualitypays.co. And I also have a podcast, which is called Beyond the Pay Gap Figure. So I like to share insights around, you know, all things to do with pay equity, pay transparency. Um, So, yeah, I would say that they're the three best places for you to kind of catch me and what I'm I'm talking about next. (laughs) That's great. Well, thank you so much for your time. And I'll put all the links in the show notes so that if anybody would like to get in touch with Michelle, then you can do. Thank you. Fabulous. Thank you so much for having me on. It was a lot of fun. Well, I don't know about you, but I found that interview with Michelle really interesting and insightful. I learned a lot myself about the gender pay gap and also other areas of equality in relation to pay. If you'd like more information, then I'll put all the details about how you can contact Michelle in the show notes. And of course, you can always contact me directly. It's alison at realemploymentoradvice.co.uk. Thank you so much for listening. I look forward to speaking to you again in two weeks time. Thanks again for listening. Just want to finalise by saying I wouldn't be a lawyer unless I had a legal disclaimer. So I must just say to you that the information in this podcast is for information only. It's general review and a general update. It's always necessary to get specific legal advice about your circumstances. So please don't rely on anything that you've heard in this podcast. But please do feel free to contact me if you'd like further information or specific advice.